0: The Internet Archive collects historical records of the Internet. The Wayback Machine is one tool from the Internet Archive which you may be familiar with. One project you may be unfamiliar with is book scanning. Internet Archive scans high volumes of books in order to digitize them. In today's episode, David Simenzin joins the show to talk through the history of the Internet Archive and the engineering behind book digitization. We talk through OCR, storage, architecture, and scalability. I want to mention that we're looking for writers and podcasters for Software Engineering Daily. If you're interested in being a podcaster or a writer, email erica at softwareengineeringdaily.com. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. You work on the Internet Archive. What does the Internet Archive do? That's a great
1: question. The Internet Archive is the world's largest digital library. And whereas most people may know of us because of the Wayback Machine, which is this really rather neat tool that allows you to go back in time and kind of see what web pages used to look like, um, we really are a fully-fledged online digital library. And as that, we have different types of media types. We, we hold texts and television and and audio, images, movies, all sorts of things. And yeah, the Internet Archive you can think of as this huge repository attached to the internet.
0: When did you start working there?
1: I started here in 2016, Uh, so it's been, yeah, four years.
0: And what do you work on there today?
1: Well, I work on the books. That's mostly what I what I have always been on. I'm spanning the bits inside of this. So usually when we think about our media types, we think of them in terms of bits in and bits out, how we procure them and how we distribute them. My specialty is working on the book bits in. So in order to build up our collection of almost 4 million books, we have to scan them. And my job is to sort of keep running the the whole pipeline that allows us to do that. So over the last four years, with my team, I built it. And now we achieved our, our objective of being able to digitize
0: a million books per
1: year, which we're doing. And it's been a pretty interesting challenge so far.
0: So you work on book digitization. And I want to talk about that. But first, let's talk more about the Internet Archive at a high level. Can you tell me about what is being stored across the Internet Archive and who pays for it and how do people use it? Just share a little bit more about the Internet Archive. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm
1: going to start from uh, who pays for it, because I think that there is a lot of depth in that question. The Internet Archive, if you think about it as a, as a repository, is just essentially a bunch of hard drives spinning connected to the Internet. Somebody's got to pay for both the Internet connection and the hard drives and the electricity and all of that. Largely, you can think of, of our revenues in three different ways. So we're a non-profit and we don't really run for-profit businesses. We don't benefit uh, in any way of the data that comes on, uh, on our servers. We do benefit from your donations. And so by and large, we are a community-funded effort. And so if you go to archive.org slash donate, we actually just added the integration with Apple Pay. So if you want to help us test that, that'd be great. So we receive a, a fair amount of the money that we, we need to run from patrons and just like people who, who support us. On the side, we do have some, uh, some small some businesses. So we have our Archive It digital arm, uh, arm where... Essentially, we contract out our Wayback Machine capabilities, and we, we are maintaining a very large amount of, of curated website collections. In fact, we I think we have about 700 organizations that are that are partnering with us to create these collections, and a few tens of billions of euros that have been collected for, for our partners. And so they pay us to do this service, and, uh, and we do it for them. And the same is true for books digitization. So... As we have built up the large infrastructure uh, that is required to do this kind of tasks, we have to an extent the ability to contract that out to third parties. And so we do get some uh, some revenue streams that way. Not anything particularly substantial in terms of like our ability to, to sustain ourselves, but, you know, every little bit helps. And then, obviously, throughout the, the 20, almost 25 years of our existence, uh, our founder Brewster Kale has... Um, chipped in here and there and like a significant amount, I want to guess, over the years to to keep us running. So we have donations, we have a little bit of our non-for-profit business, and then we have Brewster who is there. So this is in terms of who pays for it. But the other question would be, I guess, who benefits from it, right? And that's a very, very large segment of the internet. We're not the biggest website on the internet. I think we are. We're ranking about 200 and something on the Alexa rank. But since we've been around for a fairly long time, the users that, that love us, they love us. Like, I, I, every day I am in contact with people who tell me their story about how they use the Internet Archive for their specific. Need and I'm always amazed by the the depth and the breadth of the of the use cases that our users bring to us. So it, it, it spans from teachers to to researchers to journalists to lawyers. There is a very very large diversity also in terms of like the countries from and and the backgrounds from from when where our users come from. So it's kind of hard to to paint them with a with the same brush. But in general, I want to say they are people who have some degree of love for knowledge. And you may know our our motto, our slogan, our mission is universal access to all knowledge. And so I guess people who, who have an interest in that eventually land on, on our website.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about book digitization as a particular project that is under the auspices of the Internet Archive. What is book digitization?
1: So book dig- digitization is the effort of transforming physical books into digital artifacts. So that's the definition. It can take different forms, you know, if you are if you have a scanner in your home and you're scanning a document, in a way that's obviously that's digitization. If you take pictures of a book, that's a book book digitization. So the definition then needs to be applied to the use case at hand. There have been other efforts at large scale of books digitization, famously Google had one, but their way of doing it was slightly different from ours, for instance, where they did uh, distractive digitization. So they would pull the spines from books and, uh, and turn that process into a uh, sort of essentially shit feed kind of pro- problem. We do non destructive book digitization. And I think like the non destructive bit, it's just every little bit as important in the definition as the fact that we're digitizing books because we're digitizing them so that we can keep them, so that we don't destroy them. So it's, it's the process by which we turn books into bits and then we return books to wherever they came from or wherever they need to go.
0: So why would I want to digitize a book? And how many books get digitized each day? Just tell me more about... The volume that's going through this. Oh, I'm very happy to answer this. So the reason why you would want to digitize a book,
1: there is multiple. So think about, for instance, the, the the first thing that comes to mind is obviously preservation. A famous Brewsterism is that accessibility drives preservation. So if you don't have something, it's almost like it doesn't exist. Especially in this age of information, we do have immediate access to all of all of these resources. And so if, if, we, if you actually think about this, if you have to go to the library to, to procure a certain book, chances are you won't. And if the, if the record of that book actually doesn't exist, you may never get to it. And so where this is a problem is for all of this huge amount of books that were printed in the 20th century, for which there is really no digital equivalent. Books nowadays that are published like currently, obviously they have e-book artifacts, so that stuff is not gonna get lost. And that stuff is searchable and it's reachable. But we have tens of millions of books that are just unaccounted for. And as time progresses, they're getting lost. And if we if somebody doesn't save them, they, they will be lost forever. And that's that would be a pity and, and a huge loss of you know human effort. And so, well, first of all, I think it's important to scope the problem. And I, I think in, in the, the, the estimates that there is about 100 million books out there, give or take, unique, unique books. And, you know, scanning them, we're probably not going to scan all, all 100 of them, first of all, because you would, you, you would be able to source it. And that's by far the hardest thing. So we, we try to scope down the problem and try to figure out, OK, how can we do this in a way that is useful for people? So, first of all, I think we had to f- come up with a list of books that we wanted to scan. That we knew these are books that are important, and we need to scan these first, so that um, we will s- we will get uh, we will get them to people, and this will be evidently immediately useful. And a good place for us to start was Wikipedia. We just collected a long list of ISBNs that were commonly cited in Wikipedia, compiled the list and came out to a few hundred thousand books. And so whenever we we come upon one of those in our sourcing process, we make sure that, that we get it. We can talk about the sourcing process a little bit later. But in general, we do have a little bit of a concept of priority, or at least we did. This was for the first million, million and a half. And then the problem was that we started running out of books. You would be surprised how hard it is to source books by the by the half a million, you know. And if you if you do it by a smaller scale, it doesn't really make sense to to us in terms of maintaining our our economics of scale. So the whole system works only if you scan at a huge volume and all the time. And by huge volume, we're talking about a million books a year, which is about three thousand books a day. Some days some days we'll do thirty five, some days we'll do twenty five. On a seven days week, it averages out at about yeah between 20 to 20,000, 25000 books every book is about 300 pages so that comes out pretty neat about million million pages per day 5 to 7 million pages per week and you know, that's not a huge amount of data. In total, I, I would be surprised. I think like last time I checked, it was about between 10 and 15 terabytes of data a week. So we're not talking about huge amounts, but it's not a small amount either. And we can talk about the challenges of piping that data over the internet in a reliable way later. But it's a significant volume and this operation is running, you know, 24 seven. And so in terms of why even do this, so I covered the first part, which is obviously people want to get to the books. There is a second benefit in having digitized books, and the, and it's that it's a wholly new format. It allows you to interact with the body of knowledge in a way that you never have before. If you have a physical book artifact, it has some very desirable properties, for instance, very low random access time and doesn't depend on a battery. It's very, very hard to censor. And these are not properties of of a digital artifact, but digital artifacts are searchable. And in fact, we have like this pretty amazing full text search engine where you can instantly search all 40 million text items that we have. So that's the 4 million books plus all of the patents, papers, all, all sorts of stuff. And you can search that instantly. That was just not possible with, with the previous format. So I don't think this is a dualism in any way. I think books in their digital format and books in their physical format will continue to coexist. They just help each other out. And in fact, if we are able to digitize them in the first place, it's because of the properties of digital, of physical artifacts that they, they don't just disappear. You know, if we find one, we can scan it.
0: Well, that was a great summary of, of what you do, and I can tell how excited you are about it. Let's talk a little bit more about the high level, and then we'll get into the engineering. So. Can you describe the steps of digitization in more detail? If I have a book, how am I digitizing it? Yeah. So the book's digitization pipeline is, is pretty
1: simple. And it's like, in a way, like if you're an engineer, I think it's kind of what you expect. So first, there is a, a physical sorting uh, step. Where your book is ingested into the system, it's given an ID and it's it's placed in a container, so we know that this, the uh, that it exists, so to speak. The second step is it gets to a scanner. The scanner picks it up, puts it in the in the machine, loads up the data as necessary. Whereby data I mean uh, the book's metadata. We can we're gonna have to talk about that, I guess. It's a pretty interesting facet of it all. And then they proceed to actually scan it, which means they turn the pages page by page, and they take pictures of the pages. And once this process is done, they click Upload, and the book vanishes into the ether. And so at this point, we have a fork. The digital artifact goes into our servers. The physical artifact either goes back to the person who gave it to us in the first place, or it goes into our warehouse. And this largely depends on what kind of book it is. So uh, obviously there is a larger conversation to be had about copyright and like what books is it is it okay to scan and under what guise it is, but suppose we are just you know, scanning your book, Jeff. And you you just wrote your own book, and you want to have it digitized. There is no claim on it. You just want it back at the end. So after we're done scanning it, we're handing it back to you with a slip inside, which will tell you the Internet Archive identifier. And the identifier is just the name of the item. On the Internet Archive, everything is an item. And you're just going to go to archive.org slash details slash your identifier. And uh, a few hours later, you will find your book. While you wait, the second part of the pipeline is going to kick off. So that's the digital server side stuff. And it's divided in essentially three phases. We have a first phase, which it's a a pre-processing stage where we get all of these images that that came raw from the camera. We look at them, we crop them, we disk them, and we just make sure that everything is, is ready to go. There is a second phase of manual review. So currently, all books that we upload have to be checked by a human for correctness. And so this is a step where a reviewer just goes through the images, and ensures that everything is fine. And then when this is done, they kick off the third stage of the pipeline, which is a is the real processing stage where we take all of these files and compile them in such a way that they are suitable for consumption by our web front end, what we call our book reader. And from there, we also derive other, we call them derivative formats, such as PDF, ABI, EPUB, and other uh, text files, OCR. It all happens at, at, at this stage. This is kind of like the bird eye view of the, of the book's digitization pipeline.
0: Let's start to get into the actual engineering of things. I think the place to start is the OCR. So, if a book is getting scanned, you're going to run OCR over that scanned book to determine what the characters are, right? So, I'd love to know a little bit about the OCR process and if you use an off the shelf OCR system or how, what role that plays. Sure. So OCR, as I mentioned, happens towards the end of the pipeline. So at
1: that point, we have all of these images that have already kind of like being scaled down because the originals are very high resolution. So you wouldn't want to feed that to an OCR. And they are kind of correct and ready to go. So uh, we use an off-the-shelf OCR solution. Uh, I believe it's called LuraTech. And we OCR between 1 and 2 million pages every day. This includes both the books that I mentioned, plus like all of the other stuff that gets uploaded to the archive. And what that is really useful for is creating this abby file format that essentially it's an XML file that contains the position of every letter in, in the page. And it comes out to be, to be like a huge file. And what we do is we use that to, to feed it to our search full text search cluster. So that what we can do is uh, whenever you search for some term inside a certain book, we can highlight the exact portion where that occurs. So that's one place where OCR is really useful. And obviously, it's also useful to create sort of text version PDF files of, of books as well as uh, epubs and such but in terms of of the engineering of it it's kind of a black box for us we have we have a very established interface by which we know what the Luratex software expects and we
0: we get uh, we get results on the other end so the text gets indexed only within the context of a particular book or do you have a gigantic index where I can search over all of the books in the internet archive?
1: Ha! The second. We we actually have a gigantic index. And we just recently rebuilt our cluster and now it's blazingly fast. It's pretty awesome. It just uses el- Elasticsearch in, uh, in the background. And we, we just maintained this very large index of, I think, it's about 42, I think, million items and so you can you can search everything at once and then when you are like within the context of the book obviously you can scope down the search to that specific book but I think it, it it's really cool because it only makes sense when you can search for everything and that opens up like a huge amount of obvious cases because you can almost do kind of free-form search you know like it's um it's it's pretty remarkable use case of something that you couldn't do in a normal library. Just hey, give me all of the all of the books that have I don't know my name in it. That can be that can be interesting.
0: Can you describe the storage architecture in more detail? So you're storing all these books. Are they stored on disk? Are they in? Uh, do you try to keep them in memory? How do you think about storage for all of these books? Oh, absolutely. So storage
1: architecture is kind of paramount to everything we do, right? Because I kind of describe the archive as a NAS, and in a way, that's what it is. So I guess engineering-wise, the overarching principle is to just, it's essentially a Unix philosophy of using off-the-shelf tools wherever it's possible. So all our data is stored as files in directories. And these directories are stored on standard EXT, ext4 file systems, and we subscribe to a very simple file system philosophy where, other than you know some of the system stuff, everything is stored in slash one, two, three, four, five, uh, however number of the disk is on your uh, on your server, and so we don't we don't do any sort of like striping, we don't do any sort of uh, splicing. Every item just lives as a directory on some disk and that's that's where it is we do have duplication and I'm going to talk about that in a second but the reason why we we structure things this way is twofold one it's very simple it's very simple to administer it's predictable and it makes a platform migration over time a lot more predictable and you know we've been we've been keeping this data for 20 25 years so the architecture needs to be simple enough that it can traverse different stages of technology cycles. The other other reason for it is the disaster scenario. So it pains me to say this, but, you know, we are based in San Francisco and the San Andreas' fault is pretty close. If something happens, God forbid, the principle is that you should be able to pull out whatever disk from the server, plug it into another computer, and just read the data off of it obviously if you, if you do some degree of uh striping that wouldn't be possible or easy this way the things are just as as straightforward as as they can be from a storage perspective. This does add some complexity in our application layer, where we have to be able to allocate, for instance, items basing on their size to different disks. So all of that logic that moves stuff around to make sure that there is enough space and that when items grow in size, they are reallocated, all of that kind of is home built. And that's the other engineering principle simple most of the times, crazy when we need it. So the general architecture again, uh, so this is the architecture within a single server. The larger cluster is just a lot of these servers all connected on the same network essentially. And Extremely distributed. So whenever you hit your, you know, whatever web page on on the archive, looking for an item, what is going to happen is that you're going to hit a web head. We have just a, a pool of like a few a few VMs that will do like just front fronting Nginx requests, and they're gonna they're gonna locate your item using our little locator D protocol, which is kind of a cool little DNS. For items, as we call it, it's kind of it sends a UDP broadcast uh, to all of the cluster, and the machines that have the correct items will just respond with a UDP unicast, and so this is how we are able to locate items within the cluster. And then the connection is redirected and everything happens over HTTP with that specific data node. This is in the read path. In the write path, everything, like if you want to write to an item or create a new one, you are not just able, obviously, to talk to a server and say, hey, create a directory for me. Uh, you have to talk to our catalog system, which is our centralized task queue, and it will receive the data, make sure that it ends up in an item, perform all of the checks that are necessary in what I was talking about earlier. So in terms of like space being available, et cetera, et cetera and then it will write the item and like leave a trace so we have like some uh, some degree of also forensics trace of, of whatever happens in the archive and then the other big piece of the architecture would be the metadata api which is the directory service for all of these items so what this service does it's aggregate data from you know catalog locator data within the item and it collect collects collect that into json files that guarantee that you have up to date information about the metadata of all 40-50 million items that we have right now and like so from from a high level perspective this is kind of what the storage infrastructure looks like and what the, the, the pieces are you have the cluster you have the cluster
0: with the items you have the catalog and you have the metadata api can you tell me some general lessons that have emerged in how to do digitization at scale?
1: Oh, sure. Plenty. I think one, one that comes to mind immediately is the same between uh, building up our cluster and building up our digitization uh, infrastructure, which is using as much as you can off-the-shelf cheap things. So our, our scanners which I guess I should talk a little bit about, because maybe like you're imagining a scanner like a flatbed scanner. Not quite. We have three different families of, of, of devices for scanning books. The older one we call the full-frame scribe is kind of like a, a, a telephone box. There is a t- tabletop scribe, which is a scaled-down version of the, of the same system that just like sits on a table. And then we have something called the fold-out scribe which uh, is kind of like a table with a with a camera on top and we use that to tape to take pictures of like large, large, large format and uh, uh, maps newspaper and stuff like that so as we built up the capacity to digitize very large amounts of very different kinds of formats of books so one lesson was do this with as little specialized equipment as you can And this is especially true for cameras. So there is a ton of very sophisticated industrial sensors that you could use for this. But it turns out what works for us is just using Sony cameras. We used to use Canons before this. Uh, We we used to have 5Ds, but we phased those out because after a couple of million shots, like the mechanical shutter activator would would fail. And so Sony has these pretty new cameras. They're pretty cool. Um, We started with the A6300. Alpha. They're pretty cool cameras because they have this shutterless mode. And so there is no mechanical activation involved in a shot. And in fact, I think we rolled out three or 400 of those at this point. And the failure rate is negligible. I think it's like literally like less than 10 that have probably failed. Sometimes it's the lens that fails and stuff like that. But amazing amazing reliability from, from consumer hardware there. However, the other lesson that we learned is that Books specifically are kind of a weird beast because You know, in every engineering problem, I guess, at some point, you have to model it and you have to make some assumptions about, okay, this is the size of book that I'm expecting. This is the kind of content that I'm expecting. If I have to do, like, auto-cropping, I expect, like, there will be a white area here or whatever, or, like, I can expect this kind of size. And it's amazing how quickly any assumption you can make about books will go out of the window, especially when you scan, like, thousands of them a day. It's, It's really interesting how many different formats they they will come in uh, and how in, into how many edge cases you will run in, and this goes from books that have like puppets in them, to books that have CDs to books that have electronics, to books that have like bizarre foldouts that are really difficult to capture. So the lesson here is don't be too sure about what you will encounter and <laughs> be ready to accommodate it. So for example, one of the things that we had to do is modify that uh, that pipeline that I talked about earlier. If you recall, I said you upload your book and then it goes into this pipeline, and it comes out of the other end and it's on the website, whereas the physical book goes away into a warehouse. Well, sometimes after you scan a book or while you scan it, you realize that it has a weird foldout, and it would be a pity not to not to capture that. So I modified the pipeline so that after a book is uploaded it can actually be downloaded in a different station rescanned with the missing pages and then re-uploaded and this process can be repeated for like an arbitrary number of times so we have books that have traveled like two stations then they got back corrected pretty pretty interesting process and kind kind of involved but it required it was a classic example of we can fix this with software but it's an edge case that we would have never thought about. Yeah, those are two lessons right there.
0: Are you using any cloud services or is this all on-prem stuff? 100% on-prem, zero cloud, nothing, nil. Is that for cost reasons or consistency reasons or you've been doing it for so long that why not reasons? Uh, great question. So I think there is there is different
1: orders of reasons. First of all, is cost. First and foremost, again, this is not a, a, a storage project like a high school storage project. This is this is a long term preservation effort, and it turns out that like you know fads are fads, but what we're interested in are kind of long term reliable technologies, and we found that if we roll out our own solution, we can be a lot cheaper than the cloud. I think right now we are more than 10 times cheaper than the cloud, depending on how you define cloud or whatever whatever you you, <laughs> you compare it to. Obviously, if, you were, if, if we were to store uh, 60 petabytes of data in Glacier, it would be very different than storing it in uh, S3 or EC2. But what is certainly true as well is that we have been lucky enough that the cost of storage has decreased in a manner that is kind of similar to the manner in which users have uh, have increased, and that is not at all guaranteed, you know. But we managed to to keep that pretty on point, and so as our uh, demand for space has ballooned, it turned out that we could kind of keep up just by relying on the fact that that the hard drives were getting cheaper. And we've been expanding our capacity significantly, but all of that still, in terms of cost, significantly cheaper than what it would have would have been if we had outsourced it. And also in terms of engineering, because then you know you need to re-architect your platform every couple of years. If you're uh, if you no, know, this platform fails, then you move it elsewhere and whatnot. So this is like a first reason. Then there are some uh, some more philosophical reasons why we like to do it that way. First of all, we like to have control over our data. And, you know, that means that, you know, if a national security letter arrives, at least we know that it arrived. And we successfully fought one a few years ago. But it also allows us to, to ensure that our patrons' data is safe. It, and by that, I mean something very specific. I mean that there is a very long and sad story of uh, libraries being asked about, you know, list of things that people were reading. We want to make sure that such lists don't exist. And to the extent to which they exist, we know where they are and, we, and nobody else can can see them. By that I mean, you know, obviously we have some web server logs before we get rid of them. We anonymize them and everything. But even that is something that we want to have on our own premises. We wouldn't want to have them in somebody else's computer, so to speak. and. The way we are able to do this, because you know this may sound pretty pretty interesting, how do you get to be ten times cheaper than the cloud? Well, we have a very different online, sorry, uptime uh, requirement than than the cloud. The cloud needs to be up 95.59 percent or whatever. We decide that it's uh, it's better to take a hit on availability, and it's amazing when you drop that requirement from nine fives to just 99%, you are making an incredible amount of savings on the the infrastructure that is required to keep you going then. So you will find that throughout the year, the archive every so often may be down. It may be down because we get a fiber cut like we did last year. Could we have another fiber? Yes, but it would be very, very expensive. In fact, we're getting another one. That's a separate story. Could we have uh, three, four, five replicas of every piece of item that we have? Sure, we could. But would it be worth uh, spending three, four times the hard drive budget and everything else, scaling up things, so that we can guarantee a 0.1% of availability? If you are Amazon.com and you have a cart that needs to be dispatched, maybe we calculated that we're not and that it makes more sense for us to save and sort of push the limits of frugality that way. And so, yeah, this is why.
0: It's very interesting about the sacrificing reliability for cost management. Are there any other ways in which that the, the trade-offs of the unique, the unique domain that the Internet Archive is solving for, anything else like any other t- interesting trade-offs or... Anecdotes you can you can share about that?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I met. Uh, you were asking, I guess, in terms of uh, storage. One that I mentioned is, and maybe we didn't really talk about as much, but uh, one thing that I mentioned is that our data obviously doesn't exist in a single copy, right? We have, uh, as a policy, we keep paired copies of everything. So every the way it works is that every server has a mirror image of itself in a different data center. How did we come to the realization that two was enough? Is simply uh is, is a case of this. So it would be fairly easy, I think, to re-architect things so that we could have triple copies or quadruple copies or for like certain items or whatever. But the reality is that the that cost is not offset by the benefit that we would be giving to our patrons. I think our patrons, a good way to think about this is like to think of, again, back to our users. It's hard to find them with a with a broad stroke, but what brings them together is the fact that they are interested in our in our uh, in our offer, certainly sort of the content that we have. But they're also not paying for it, and like some of them are, are donating. But everybody understands that sometimes the library may be closed, right? You're not you're not going into the library with the same attitude as you would be going to a store. And in fact, it's very important that the library remains free. Andrew Carnegie, who is by uh, <laughs> anyway, you can imagine an expression of, com- of, of, of capitalism when he founded uh, the Boston Public Library, had free to all written in big letters on top of it, you know. And so this is an, an, an interesting way in which the engineering is actually serving the mission. Allowing us to trade reliability for cost makes sure that we actually make the Internet Archive uh,
0: available in the long term. Tell me an anecdote about something that has been incredibly hard in the digitization process. What kinds of tasks have been really difficult?
1: Oh, there's, uh, there's been a few. I'll talk about my personal experience of rewriting the, the software stack. So when I picked up this project back in 2015, the, we had an existing, existing digitization system. We called that Scribe 2. And it was... Kind of a relic of the past. It hadn't really been maintained, but it was kind of working and chugging along. And it's what what most people did their scanning on. It's what they knew. And my my job was to essentially rewrite this thing from scratch. And there were a few things that were that, that were necessary. One major requirement was that instead of working like the previous system did, which was kind of hooked up into our infrastructure almost at the network level, so you would have like every scanner was like kind of VPNed into into our main cluster, this could only interact with the Internet Archive over APIs. And one, one huge challenge there was that we just didn't have all of these APIs, and we had to find a way to expose like, part of the guts of the system to the outside world in a way that that was kind of secure and acceptable to you know the, the, the existing developers of the of the internal of the internal software. So that was like a first challenge in re-architecting the system. The second one was that I wasn't starting from scratch. In fact, I had inherited this little script, and the script was like what we called Scribe 3. It was a new version of the Scribe scanning software. It was maybe like one or 2,000 lines of Python in this GUI system called Kiwi. And what it did, it was it, it essentially mimicked some of the main features that like the, uh, the previous system had, while it like did some crazy things trying to mimic the sorry trying to get to the backend APIs that we still didn't have. And so the problem with this is that it was already being used by the time I came on board. Like ten or fifteen people we were already trained on this and it wasn't great software by any like it was just very early and so a huge challenge was developing the software back end so in our cluster creating all of this new set of APIs while we were creating a new front end for which we had existing legacy so users already had expectations about how it would have to work and in all of this we couldn't lose a day of production. It's not like I could say, hey, let's pause everything and get back to to the drawing board. So paying back that technical debt took took a couple of years. And I think we are we're now in a good place where the whole thing was, was re-architected from being just a script. It's, now it's like essentially a little operating system. So that was an interesting interesting little challenge. I'll tell you another one. So I mentioned that in the previous incarnation of the system, every node, every scribe, was hooked up to our main cluster at the network level. And the reason this was interesting and made the system necessary was so that th- these nodes were running the same PHP monolith as uh, the rest of the cluster and were able to, to act as Internet Archive storage nodes. So whenever you scanned a book, you scanned it into this thing, and then it would just get shuffled away to uh, to its final destination once it was done. And what this allowed you to do was also to have access to all of this wealth of internal APIs for pre-processing that I mentioned earlier. Once we decided to cut off the cord, not only did we lose access to all of these APIs, but we also lost access to the ability to control these scanners remotely, right? Because suddenly you no longer have all of these nodes that have IP addresses. They are just the clients that talk to our HTTP API. And the reason this was a problem is that a lot of management actually happens in, in a centralized fashion, where, for instance, you have a manager that wants to say, show me, show me all of the books that are being processed in my digitization center. Or something happens and you want to clean up all stations that have that, that belong to this other center where we know that there has been a, a problem. In general, like we didn't ha- we lost entirely visibility and uh, the ability to contact our stations from like the central mothership. And so what I ended up doing to to fix that was create I just used IRC. It's it's still a great solution to this day. There is now an IRC server that acts as a command and control for all of these stations. All of these stations essentially talk in their own channel, and there is an HTTP API that you can use to send messages to all of these scribes. And so that integrates with our with our management tools. And it's yeah, that that was pretty that was that was pretty cool. I didn't expect that IRC would be a
0: solution in 2019 to a problem that I had. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about the Internet Archive. Now that we've given a a good overview of one of the particular projects under the auspices, generally speaking, how does the Internet Archive scale? Are you just racking and stacking new servers and, and scaling that way? Pretty much, yes. For for the core data product, that is exactly the case. We will
1: add bigger and bigger disks over time. I think our most recent addition are 12 terabytes. And so the density of a single rack will go, will go up over time. But other than that, that's, yeah, that, that's how we scale, by, by the rack pair. It's never one rack. It's always two because items are paired. Yeah, And I think at this point, so every rack is 10 data nodes. Every data node has 36 disks. I think right now we're about four, four and a half petabytes per, per rack pair. And yeah, we scaled that way. There are other components of the infrastructure that don't scale or don't scale as well, so, or scale differently. So um, our, we use Redis a lot for, for caching all over the place. And so we scale that to a 10 to a nodes cluster, uh, which was an interesting project. We scale Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch also scale, pretty, scales pretty horizontally. And we do that within the context of our high performance virtual machines pool. And then there are like some other components of the infrastructure that will scale less. So I mentioned this catalog task queue. That that's kind of a problem for us still. But we managed to make it go faster but by scaling it like vertically, making better things happen in it, adding more layers of priority, making faster database access, all, 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 the, all that stuff. But to any practical purpose, the core of the Internet Archive scales just horizontally. We just rack and stack.
0: What's the worst case catastrophe scenario that could happen? Are there any worst case scenarios that could happen, like a earthquake or hurricane that you're not resilient to because you're not on the cloud?
1: That's a great question. And I, I think that's above my pay grade and that like it requires a, a certain amount of scenario planning that I wasn't necessarily involved in. But from my understanding, what keeps me up at night is the earthquake more than anything else. We do have off-site backups. We do have partial backups. We do have some ability to recover our data, even we're not feathered to the cloud. But the reality is that the majority of our data is here. And if something happens to the Bay Area, I, I think that that's the nightmare scenario for me. I am less worried about cyber threats. I am less worried about other kinds of man-made threats. What really worries me is, you know, the big one. And that is not so much because the data will be lost is because, again, I said we, we've already done our, uh, our best to, to make sure that data will be, will be available even uh, in a disaster recovery scenario. It's because the data will no longer be available. And so that, that goes back to accessibility drives preservation. The moment the archive goes offline uh, in a disaster scenario, it starts losing value that very second, and that, that scares me. I think that's the disaster scenario for me.
0: What are the plans for the future of the Internet Archive? Are there any new projects that are going to be taking up a lot of the time?
1: There are, but I cannot talk about them.
0: Okay, fascinating.
1: <laughs> but stay tuned because there are, there are always things cooking, for sure.
0: What keeps you working at the Internet Archive? The people and the mission.
1: I want to say and I, I want to spend just a few words commending the people that I work with and they are really some of the finest engineers I I have had the pleasure to to interact with. I learned a lot at the archive and I was given the opportunity to, you know, build up a pretty large system with a pretty significant amount of backing from high up. It, it's been incredibly empowering and not just cuz, you know, you feel You feel like you're building something. You also feel like you're building something for people who care. So that's the mission part of it all. I believe in universal access to all knowledge. I believe in books being important and access to information being important. And I think ultimately this data set will prove really, really useful. I don't know. It's pretty simple, really. It's the people and the mission.
0: Okay, David. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff.